Father, we cannot comprehend Your majesty or Your glory, but we give You praise and we give You thanks. Because the power that resurrected Jesus from the dead will also bring us to life. Lord, You have the power to bring something into existence from nothing. You are Creator God. Your Son, our Redeemer. You give us life and life we have those of us who trust in You. And Lord, we pray that we would live each day for You. Lord, I pray at this moment for Ellen and Terry and Alice. Also pray for Fred and Kathy. I pray for all those who were friends and are friends with Scott the years that have transpired the memories there, but knowing that one day, one day, in the resurrection, we will all be together again. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. Um, so Barbara and I are are actually countryfied, or I should say, cityfied. <laughs> We're cityfied country folk. <laughs> she was raised in Alaska. You can't get more country than that, or I should say, you can't get more wilderness than that. And in part, I was raised uh, right here in Sugarland, where the ground that we're on right now, this ground right here was an open uh, field next to Bullhead Bayou, and the nearest dirt road was up over here by Commonwealth. Austin, no such thing. Settler's Way didn't happen. I looked at it on a map to make sure that that was the case. <laughs> but we love being close to big cities because primarily accessibility to the arts and, and uh, travel. But even here, Sugarland seems a little bit too uh, large for us at times. So one of the reasons that we love the new house that we bought is that there is a water retention area behind us. And then there is also electrical lines that run uh, behind us. And therefore, we know in our lifetimes and probably the next, there will be nothing but this three-quarter mile view of nothing but green. Green trees, a couple of lakes. I mean, it's, it's awesome. So we can go out and then we can just sit and then we can look and see nothing, nothing but green. However, as we all know, as beautiful as that might be, Houston is humid. Say it ain't so. Often when we get up in the morning and I want to look at that beautiful view, I see nothing but condensation on the windows. So instead of a beautiful view, all I see is muddle. Now, over time in the morning, as the morning progresses, the condensation evaporates. And once again, the beautiful view that was always there is revealed. The book of Revelation is a lot like that. The beautiful vista has always been there. But sometimes it's been blocked by the condensation of differing opinions and 
confusing language. And quite frankly, the biggest block is a lack of Old Testament familiarity. But I, I trust that the condensation has been uh, burning off the windows over this past year, and you're beginning to see the connections and the importance and the beauty of what's happening. It's grim, to be sure, but, it, but it's also uh, grand. And I hope that today's message will further open your eyes to the story, the importance of it, and the irony that God uh, so loves. We're going to be covering a lot of territory, a lot of material, but the story itself is actually uh, simple. And it's something along the lines of, of this. We were designed, you and I were designed to live forever. We were designed to be in fellowship with God forever. We were designed to worship our Creator and through the fall, those things became corrupted and we die. And our fellowship with God is often interrupted. But our need for worship was never removed ever from us. And so after the fall, we began, instead of worshiping the creator, we began to worship the created things. Uh, Isaiah chapter 44 gives a vivid description of that. If you ever want to read a humorous description, deadly serious, but still funny. It's about a man who gets an oak or a cypress or a cedar and he and he grows it and he tends it. And he, and you know, he loves on it. Maybe he carves him and his wife's initials on it with a heart. Who knows? But then he cuts it down. And for a third of it, he uses it in firewood to keep him warm. Ooh, this is such nice firewood to keep me warm. And then a third of it, he builds something. Oh, I can, I can make something out of this. And then with a third of it, he carves an idol. And he gets on his knees and he worships it. I mean, the, the, the senselessness of such a thing, and yet that's what we do, and that's what we do all the time. Because the entire story is a story, as one author put it, it's a tale of two cities. One city is Babylon. By the way, you might not know this, might be of interest to you. That's the second most mentioned city in all of Scripture. And the other is Jerusalem which is the most mentioned city in Scripture. Babylon is counterfeit. Jerusalem is real. The question is ever and always, to what kingdom will you swear allegiance? Now remember, nested, uh, I wanted to, and I think Barb has some of these. She's going, oh, I could have brought him and he would have showed him. These little nesting dolls, these little Russian nesting dolls. So remember that nested in the seven seals. Just, okay, I'm opening one and pulling one out. Are the seven trumpets and nested in the seven trumpets of the seven bowls. And now telescoping out of the very end of chapter 16, 17 and 18 gives us a picture of what the fall of Babylon looks like. A detailed view of the fall. Yet one of the lessons in, that we looked at last week 
from Genesis chapter 11 is that Babylon is idolatry and rebellion against God. They said, let us build a name for ourselves. We don't need God. We can find him on our own. And so last week we looked at Babylon's identity, because if we don't know the identity of Babylon, we cannot understand 17 and 18. And so Revelation 17 is introduced by the seventh ball, which is found at the end of Revelation 16. And the great city was split into three parts. Now, recall I mentioned that some think that that city is Jerusalem. Others, like myself, believe that it's Babylon. But the main point was that all the cities were destroyed. Now, I believe it's Babylon because immediately he writes, John writes, Babylon the Great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. Not just his wrath, his, his fierce wrath. So 1619 is explained in 17 and 18. So the destruction of Babylon occurs in two phases. There's the destruction in chapter 17 of a religious Babylon. And then there's the destruction of commercial Babylon in chapter 18. <clears throat> so let's begin uh, in 17, 1 through 5. It reads this way. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality, and on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great." mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. Wow. Uh, that's, that's, some, that's some heavy uh, whack, whack, <laughs> language. Earlier, we asked the question, what do we mean by Babylon? Is it a symbol? Is it a city? Perhaps both. First, when we look in this text, the the immediate thing that we see is this woman who is ornately or, or uh, adorned and she's riding on the beast. And she is, we discover, a prostitute, a harlot. You've got to understand in the Old Testament what's, what he's talking about here. It, when it's used metaphorically, it's talking about idolatry. It's talking about false religion. One need look no further than Hosea to figure that out. But the city of Babylon, founded by Nimrod, who was the original world ruler, represents the spirit of idolatry and rebellion against God. So that's what we have here. What we have here is a religious system 
that is idolatrous and that is involved in rebellion against God. Verse 6 tells us that she is drunk with the blood of the saints. <laughs> Religion without Christ will persecute, it will harm, and it will kill. Outsiders first, but then even insiders. I want you to notice something those who heralded tolerance in the last generation are among the least tolerant people in the world today. This morning I woke to news of threats against the Capitol. If you don't do what we say, we're going to burn it down. We're going to burn it down. <laughs> tolerance? Is that, that's tolerance, right? Burn it down. You don't preach? You don't preach what we want you to preach? We're going to burn it down. Boy, that makes a lot of sense. What is it? That's rebellion. That is idolatry. And if you have eyes to see and uh, look around, Babylon is stirring before our very eyes. But she has not yet had her full drink of blood. She may be beautifully arrayed, but I assure you the spirit of Babylon is ugly. Ugly to the bone. Verse 8, the beast that you saw was and is not was about to come out of the abyss and go into destruction. It's actually not that complicated language. It, it may seem that way, but this is talking about the man of sin. This is talking about the, the climax of the anti-God forces in the world and through the ages. It simply means that the Antichrist has been here before. The Antichrist has been here before. He is not now here, but he will be here again. Now, most people who have studied history, their eyes, and we've even mentioned this fellow from this pulpit, the eyes turn to Antiochus the Fourth Epiphanes. Now, he was a guy who went off and tried to do some things. He thought he was bigger than he was, found out he wasn't. And so, on his way out from Egypt, he, he whacked Jerusalem and said, there. And as a part of his little angry, mad fit, what he did was he sacrificed a pig on the altar in the temple of Jerusalem. And then, oh, by the way, he built a statue to Zeus in there. So now you're going to be worshiping Zeus and we're, we're sacrificing pigs on the altar. And that is probably... Something along the lines of what the Antichrist will do in the future. Something very similar to that. So certainly Antiochus Epiphanes is a picture of the Antichrist. No doubt about that. But I want you to note that here in this text, but also in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3, the Antichrist is called a particular title. The son of perdition. Was there another person in the Bible called the son of perdition? In fact, there was. Jesus himself calls Judas Iscariot the son of perdition. How ironic would it be if Satan possessed one to thwart Christ's work in his first coming only to possess another in an attempt to stop his work in his second appearance. Verse 9 reads, Here is, is 
the mind which has wisdom, the seven heads are the seven mountains on which the woman sits. Now remember again, and I can't state this strongly enough, that in order to understand Revelation, you, you must understand its companion book, which is Daniel. And, and Daniel answers a lot of these questions. What we find out is that John is talking of these seven heads or these kingdoms in sequence through history. Now, as soon as people see the, oh, the seven mountains, they think of Rome. Why do they think of Rome? Because Rome was built on seven hills. Now, you'll forgive anybody from Colorado, and you'll forgive anybody from Alaska, but a mountain and a hill, not the same. There are no mountains in Rome. None. Been there. Seen that. Not there. No mountains. There are hills. And then John, because he knows everybody's going to think that, and he actually wants them to, because there's a, there's a reason for that as, as well. He wants them to think Rome, but it's not Rome. Now, and he goes on and he explains it. He says that uh, the seven... Uh, in verse 9, here's the mind, which is the wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the women sits, and they are seven kings. Seven kings. In the, in the Old Testament, a mountain represented a, a ruler or even a, a kingdom. Seven kings. And he says, five have fallen. One is, and the other has not yet come. Okay, so that's fairly, that's fairly simple, especially when we look back to Daniel. And you remember, Daniel had a vision. And in that vision, or he interpreted a vision, I should say. And in that vision, there was a statue. And it went through the kingdoms. Where Nebuchadnezzar, of course, I mean, Nebuchadnezzar, right? I mean, he built the Ishtar Gate that we talked about. His head is of gold and he's magnificent and he's glorious and he's wondrous. And everything that comes after him is eh, not quite as much. And you say, yeah, but there aren't enough kingdoms there. And now that's true because Assyria and Egypt had already uh, dealt with Israel previously. And Nebuchadnezzar couldn't give a rip. It had to start with with him. You know, all this generation stuff, I think we're where are we at now? Is it like? Who's after the millennials? Is it like Z or something like that? You know who started all that? The baby boomers did. The baby boomers did because they were the generation. And so they, 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 they are the ones who created, they're the ones who created that. So everything about that whole system looks back to the, the, the baby boomers. Makes for a fascinating, uh, fascinating study. But what you find here is that you have Babylon and in the vision Medio Persia and Greece. So if you those are the three, if you add Egypt and if you add Assyria, you have the five. Five have fallen. So what was the head? What was the mountain at the time that John wrote? It was Rome. Clearly. And the seventh Kingdom has not yet come. And that's what is often referred to as the revived Roman 
Empire. And it's there where you have the Antichrist at the helm. In verse 11, the beast, which was and is not, is himself also an eighth and is one of the seven. He goes to destruction. So what that means is, is that it was the seventh king, but there's something about his kingdom that is different, so much so that it appears to be an eighth, but it's, it's really not. Remember, he takes over three of the other, well, maybe we'll get to that. If we haven't got to that, you read that. There's a lot of symbolism going on. But let's just say that this guy has world domination thoughts. <laughs> he is a totalitarian to the core. Verses 12 and 13, the ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. One hour doesn't mean 60 minutes in this case. What it's talking about is there's a short period of time where you have this alliance that goes on before the Antichrist just goes uh, crazy, insane. And those kings are contemporaries. They are going to be on the earth at the same time. Now, I want you to note something. This is fascinating to me. That the woman is in control of the beast. The woman is riding the beast like uh, one would ride a horse with a bridle. I mean, it's a very powerful thing. More powerful than the rider. Right? But yet... The woman is in control of these kings riding the beast. The rulers do not control her. She controls the ruler. So the ruler. So what we have here is a picture of a spiritually adulterous religious system. Okay, an idolatrous system that dominates the beast and the kings. A debate has raged over this. Uh, for years, what is this idolatrous system? And there have been many who with with great, what do they say, alacrity and great vim and vigor know exactly what it is. I don't. And I, and I, I mentioned that before. Last sermon, two sermons ago, same thing. But I tell you, I will tell you what I do think. But you have people like Alexander Hislop who wrote the two Babylons, he held with absolute certitude that this would be the Catholic Church because of its centrality in Europe. Stanley Toussaint, whom I deeply respect, suggested that it would be Islam. And what I want to say here, because I want to have a little caveat here, is that I don't have the intelligence of either one of those men, but I can't shake a notion I cannot shake the notion that the Tower of Babel teaches us that the center of any and all religion without God is the spirit of Babylon. That is rebellion and idolatry. In essence, what you have in the spirit of Babylon is man committing the same sin that Satan did. And essentially that is, I want to be like God. The reason for their reaching to God was the same as Satan's. In the arrogant belief that they were equal to God, they were not. Their attempt to get to God, understand, 
was not benign. It was to make a name for themselves. Babylon the Great is the idolatrous impulse of mankind behind every religious system, with the exception of true Christianity. That is Christianity that is filled with the Holy Spirit of God and His Son, Jesus Christ. The original Babylon is the mother of all false religious systems. And that's why we spent so much time on her last week. Her idolatry is the seed of all idolatry. You know, this is where I believe I see another of God's ironies here. And the Babylonian captivity did something that no other action that the Lord took ever did. You, if you're not aware of this, I will make you aware of this right now. It was the Babylonian captivity that eliminated once for all idolatry in Israel. Prior to and even up through much of the time in Babylon, Israel was idolatrous. And when I say idolatrous, I'm talking idols. I'm talking worshiping idols, false idols. And yet the Babylonian captivity stopped that forever. And here we see that the God, the God of ironies at the cross, Satan was doing everything that he could do to destroy Christ. But as Haman of old, you'll recall that story, Satan constructed a gallows to kill Christ when in reality, like Haman, it was Satan who was hung on the gallows because what Satan didn't understand is that while Christ was on the cross, he was paying the price that would set the captives free. His resurrection was going to demonstrate his right to rule. And when that happened, he stripped Satan of his kingdom. I mean, it's staggering to understand this because then you can understand a little more of what Paul meant when he says that weakness is strength. The evil doesn't see that. They don't understand it at all. Thus, where Israel's idolatry began in Babylon, it ended. And now here, God is dealing with the entire world, with the whole of the world, so that the place where idolatry, idolatry and organized rebellion against God began, it will end. And it will end completely. So, consequently, the woman controlling the empire is more than a mere world religion. While I can't identify this religious order, I do see its precursor. And you have too, you just may not know it. Once the active constraining role of the Holy Spirit is removed from the earth, you're going, well, we won't, those of us who, who know Christ. We'll, but let me tell you what will happen. Because we're tribal by nature. Don't let anybody tell you different. We're, we are. And what will happen when the Holy Spirit is, is removed, that constraining role is removed, people of different religions are going to start killing each other. In fact, it's going to be, it's going to be slaughter. We can see that early in the, in the book of Revelation, although it's not necessarily identified as such. 
Common sense tells you something. What world ruler, think about this, what world ruler is going to submit to a religious leader? None of them. And the only reason that they would is because if they didn't, they wouldn't have a kingdom to rule because everyone would be dead. So what do you do? So you let this thing rule because it's going to stop the slaughter. I mean, all you got to do, I mean, think, think of things, even in, our, even in our living memories of how this will work. I mean, think of Cambodia, think of Rwanda, think of Serbia, and on and on. And then you can, that's, that's just now, not even going back into history. That, do you think for a second that a world ruler on this stage, at this scale, is going to be run by a Buddhist or a Hindu or a Christian, minus God, of course, or a, 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 a mullah? It's not going to happen. But what if, for the sake of survival, they all banded together? And there now you begin to have the true sense of Babylon. That whole, the whole of it, the whole of the spiritual adultery, the idolatry, and the rebellion. You may not be aware of a religious movement that started gaining traction about 20 years ago. But it really picked up in 2005 when Bono and U2 adopted the emblem of this religious movement for their Vertigo tour. I mean, and he's, he's like huge, right? And so uh, you may not know anything about it, but you've seen the bumper sticker. It says coexist. And it's spelled out with different religious symbols. That's a real thing, folks. It's not just a bumper sticker. That's a real deal. And it's something like that. This may be the precursor of it. I don't know. But it's something like that where you have a, an amalgamation or a syncretistic gathering a, somehow where they're all together and they're all calling the shots because that's the only way they're going to stop the violence that's there. I have just complete impossible in our anti-religious, atheistic age in Western society imagining a single religion taking over. I don't see it at all. And if that's the case, then the Lord's return is nowhere near. And I don't believe that. I don't believe that there's anything between the Lord's return and us. So I've gotten to preaching or something. I'll try to cut it short. So, as we look to Revelation 18, we see this destruction that's going to happen. And it's going to happen towards the middle of the tribulation. Probably right at the middle of the tribulation. Why? Because who's worshipped in the last half of the tribulation? The Antichrist. So you can't have any religious system at all. You can't have any system in competition. So that religious system is going to be destroyed. Fallen. Fallen is, is Babylon. And he's going to rise to power. 
Second Thessalonians chapter two, it says he's going to set himself up as God in the temple of God. So that's likely to take place in the middle of the, the tribulation. And so he says here, the woman in verse 18, the woman whom you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Now, before we've been talking about a, a metaphor, a symbolism, but but now we're going to shift over to an actual place. I'm not going to identify that place. Some people say it's actually Babylon in Iraq. I'm not down with that exactly, but nevertheless, it's going to be something like that. And because in, in 17, the kings actually fight together to destroy Babylon, to destroy her. Okay, but in 18, they lament its destruction. So there's there's two things that are that are going on here in 18:9. The kings of the earth say the kings of the earth who committed acts of immorality and lived sensuously with her will weep and lament over her when they see the smoke of her burning standing at a distance. So in in chapter 17, it's the kings who destroy Babylon. But in chapter 18, we see that it's God who destroys Babylon. So you have two different cities that are going on here. One's a metaphor. One's a real city. At least that's my my position. In 17.5, you call it Babylon the Great. 18.2, Babylon the Great. So it's difficult to say, okay, these things are separated by that. Both of them persecute believers. Both of them uh, are burned. And it appears that the same thing, a different side of the same coin is in view. The reason I don't go metaphorical is, is quite simple. It's because the Bible guides what I believe and what I teach. And that is this. Jeremiah and Isaiah and uh, Zechariah tell us that Babylon is going to be destroyed in one day. It's just going to be wiped out in one day. So the question, has Babylon ever been destroyed? Now, some scholars argue that, yes, it was destroyed by Medo-Persia. They took it over and, and they destroyed it, only they didn't. I mean, yeah, they let it go into a little bit of ruin, but they didn't, they didn't destroy it. And that might be well argued, and I might say, yeah, you know what, okay, kind of archaeology and all that helps me. Except for this pesky fact that Zechariah says it's going to be destroyed in a day. And Zechariah was written after Medo-Persia took it over. So, i got to say, it hadn't been done yet. It hadn't been destroyed in one day. It hadn't been destroyed at all. It's never been uninhabited, ever. So it seems like these two destructions, the one in 17 and the one in 18, they're, they're connected, but one is of a system and the other is of a place. And the merchants, we know it's commercial, the merchants of the earth weep and mourn over her because no one buys her their cargoes anymore. And it gets a whole lot worse than that in terms of the commercialism. So, try to sum this up. When we woke up this morning, we woke up in Babylon. I'm not saying that the United States is Babylon. I'm not saying that. I'm speaking metaphorically now. We woke up in an idolatrous and a rebellious system. And verse 4 of chapter 18 says this, Come out of her, 
my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, and we take God's side. And then verse 20 tells us to do something very strange. It says, rejoice over her because God has given judgment over her for you. You have to understand that this system had it the opportunity would put you to death today. It is being constrained by the Holy Spirit of God that we have the freedoms that we do, that we have the ability to worship and exercise our religion that we do. And I want to tell you, we're not going to next week look at 19, 1 through 6. I'm going to move that towards Christmas. And the reason why is all of you are familiar in one way or another with Handel's Messiah. Yes? The Hallelujah Chorus. I think, I think one among us has even sang that maybe more. Do you know what that was written about? Do, do you know what that huge hallelujah was about? It was about the destruction of Babylon. Because there can be no marriage of the Lamb until Babylon is destroyed. It's an amazing thing. We don't rejoice in destruction. We don't rejoice in judgment. But what we do rejoice in is this, is that God has given judgment over her for you. We rejoice in the fact that God is with us. He is not against us. Hallelujah. The Lord our God Almighty reigns forever and ever. Babylon hates you. Jerusalem loves you. Babylon would take your life. But God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. In this we are to rejoice. God's judgment is for us. He is with us. Emmanuel. Father, we are thankful for Your goodness and Your graciousness, Your mercy. Lord, when we see You rushing towards us, it is not fear that it produces, but love. Because there's mercy and compassion in your eyes and not, not vengeance. That was taken care of on the cross. And we thank you and we praise you with all our being. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.